Amen. Good to be with you this evening. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 21. I preached this morning at Grace Emmanuel and started this, the first of a three-part series I plan to do there. And our brother Gideon, he uh, gets to hear it twice, and I assume that means he needs to hear it twice. Uh, so you just receive it to heart, tap down the nails again. But I mentioned to the elders before the service uh, how encouraged I was with Gideon, uh, the spiritual sensitivity. Uh, I talked to him this morning at Grace Emanuel, uh, the spiritual sensitivity of concern for a friend and bringing him to church and concern and wanting him to uh, get connected to a church and just the effort he take, uh, took with that. So, so Gideon, we appreciate uh, God using you in that way, and that is a good thing. I was not within 100 miles of that when I was your age, of having any measure of awareness of what was going on in other people's lives to that degree. So continue on that path, young man. Matthew chapter 21, and look with me, if you would, in verse 23. In these previous contexts, Jesus had recently, a few verses above this, gone into the temple, and before I start, I don't think I turned this on. Do I need to turn this? Oh, it's green. We're good. Sorry, last time I preached here, I never did turn it on, so a little gun-shy. So Jesus had gone into the temple and had turned over the tables and cleansed the temple, uh, refuted them for uh, making the, his father's house a house of prayer and turning it into a den of thieves. And so I'm sure that was a very popular uh, action on his behalf. And so when we come to this text, it doesn't surprise us, if we look in verse 23, when he says that when he was coming to the temple, the chief priests... And the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave you this authority? Those are great questions. Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from whence was it? From heaven? Or of men. They reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, They lie. We can't tell. We don't really know. And he said unto them, Well, then neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. And so the issue of authority, I'm sure, is uh, as it is arises in our culture, is no surprise to you. But in trying to lay a theological foundation for understanding how to navigate our time, how to understand the, biblically the issue of authority, and so this is uh, foundational work of establishing this and anticipating. Uh, addressing it in further messages. But we live in a time 
when there is an outright assault on all forms of authority. And what the message this evening is that ultimately attacks against authority are attacks against God who possesses all authority in heaven and in earth. If you turn over a few pages to Matthew 28, a familiar text that I'm sure you know in the Great Commission, in verse 17, the Bible references His disciples and says, And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. There's a delegation of his authority, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you in that authority. And then if you turn over to Psalm 2, Another familiar passage in this vein, in Psalm 2, God speaks directly, is the voice of the text, and asks, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And here's God's response to their scheme. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. And notice who it is that's scheming against Him. Not the feeble not the helpless, but the kings and the rulers, and the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. If you notice in verse 3, it says, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Those things that are restraining us, that are hindering us, that are restricting our freedom, let's get rid of it. And so the attempt today to get rid of authority is nothing less than a desire to get rid of God. Because all authority, if you follow it back up the chain, comes from Him. He has it all. There is a $5 word that maybe you've heard thrown around a lot these days. I can hardly pronounce it. It is hegemony, which is, according to Merriam-Webster, the influence or authority over others. It's almost synonymously used with oppression. Webster says the opposite of hegemony is subordination. As you know, in our culture today, it has to be smashed. It has to be removed. We can't have anyone over us. But let me give you a few words by way of definition. They all start with A. 
They're not my points. They're just random, not random vocabulary, but concepts that will help us discuss this subject of authority intelligently is the definition of authority is the right to command, the right to expect obedience. You say, well, I don't like that. I don't like that very much. That doesn't sound good. And then the word autonomy, which Webster defines as a city or an individual, listen, who lives according to his own will. He's autonomous. No one is over me. No one can tell me what to do. And ironically, uh, in the Webster's 1828 dictionary, it says next to this, this word is rarely used. Well, boy, we're getting some usage out of it today. Let me give you two recent examples of the emphasis upon autonomy in our culture. One is in the Oberfell uh, decision that legalized homosexual marriage. In the majority opinion, where the majority of the Supreme Court justices explained their decision, the first premise they made was that the first premise of the court's precedent is that the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. And so what they're taking for granted is obviously you have autonomy. And now building from that is the right to individual choice. Another usage of autonomy in a, I would argue, a wicked way comes in the uh, justification for abortion based on the definition of personhood as being equated with autonomy. What do I mean by that? That the primary argument for why they can kill a, a child in the womb is because they do not yet have autonomy. Therefore, they're not a person. So being a person and having autonomy are synonymous. And if you don't have autonomy, then you can be killed. It even opens the door. Imagine what happens with somebody who has dementia or issues with their memory and can no longer make decisions for themselves, well, then you're no longer a person. As long as you don't have autonomy and the ability to act according to your own will. And then the third word is anarchy, which is what happens when autonomy goes to seed. When autonomy becomes normative and spreads, the definition of anarchy is a lack of government... And when individuals do what they please with impunity, without restraint, we are going to do what we want to do and nobody is going to tell us otherwise. And so this description, what, did, what would this look like? Well, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
The Bible gives us a description of what this might look like. This know also, in the last days, perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. I was talking with Brother Paul Smalley this after, after the morning message, and we were discussing the nature of autonomy and how so many people in our society today are, are angry and frustrated and fierce. And why is that? Because as they go around as little gods, expecting and wanting everyone to recognize their autonomy, they're not. And it's frustrating and it's angering and they're mad. If you've ever been a parent, you've had children, you can understand frustration, right? Of wanting to command obedience and they don't do it. One of our elders was on vacation, and we, they were talking about how they saw a T-shirt that said, Everything is about me. And the only problem with that is nobody else is wearing that T-shirt, right? Wouldn't it be nice, Gideon, if we had a T-shirt? Everything is about Gideon. But then I'd have to wear, you wear a shirt that says, Everything is about me, and then I need to wear a shirt. You could pass them out. Everything is about Gideon. Everything. It's about, for him and through him and to him is everything. It's about you. And the essence of it is, is that we are going around in our society as little gods, bumping into each other and expecting others to bow to our whim. Our, we're just living out individuals doing what they please with impunity. Who are you to tell me anything? You're familiar with Judges 21, the end of the book of Judges, where this was prevalent, the last verse in the book of Judges 21 and 25. Here's the description. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And this is what happens when there is no king. When there is no absolute authority, Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And as we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you see what that will look like. Beaky and Smalley in their systematic theology, systematic theology said this, Absolute freedom to do one's will without proper authority would be a monstrosity of injustice. Because everyone's st standard of justice is what is right in their eyes. There is no objective, transcendent, absolute truth. It's what I want is what is right. If you've ever served time in the nursery, you know what this looks like. I mean, that's just bound right up in there. And has a way of coming out. They don't care about that toy until somebody else has it. 
And now their sense of justice says, I want it. You have it. I'm going to take it. And then what happens? They go to take it. And if they've cut their little incisors, they just latch on and bite them. Give it back to me. And then they wrestle. It's mine. No, it's mine. And what is the issue? We, we come in, and this isn't the best theology, but who had it first? <laughs> who was selfish first? I've literally been in the nursery and had a kid go in, dump out all the toys, circle around them. They're all mine. I thought, boy, this is going to be an hour. <laughs> this is going to be a time. To tell them, no, shocks them. The reason this is significant, John Frame said, we're without words from God of absolute authority. There can be no gospel and there can be no Christianity. This is why this is an all-out assault. This is the playbook. This is the strategy. Just kick God out of heaven and kill Him. Let's be done with Him, for goodness sakes. And this is where in our society we are a product of the Enlightenment. I mentioned this morning, if you went to public school, you probably don't know what that means. I went to public school and I didn't know what that meant, what the Enlightenment was. But it was that period of time known as rationalism, where the motto in Latin, which... If you go to public school, you don't learn that. <laughs> means dare to be wise, or is often translated as have, this is the motto, have the courage to use your own understanding. Use your understanding and what you can figure out, that is what it trumps God's revelation. And so we form gods according to our own understanding. And this is why one of the best questions you can ask yourself is, does God ever do anything that you don't like? Does He ever do anything that you just think, I wouldn't do it that way? As a matter of fact, I don't really like that. Because if God is always doing what you want, when you want, how you want, the issue is, is your God is you. He always agrees with you. God and I are on the same side. That's what he gives his spouses for. To realize, no, no, there's another side to this. You need to recheck yourself. And so we have the term insubordination, which is disobedience to lawful authority. I don't have time to parse out all the the tensions of this, that's future weeks. But the essence of what I want to communicate this evening is that all authority comes from God. All of it. And He delegates His authority into prime, three primary spheres. And you probably know these. The home, the church, and the civil government is where God has delegated His authority. That's not something I came up with. You know this is in the Scriptures. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You didn't choose your parents, 
right? Some of us would have rolled the dice again. Give me another shot at that. But he delegated his authority to the parents. And then in the church, Matthew 18, whatever you bind on earth is bound where? In heaven. Whatever you release on earth is released. And then in Matthew, or excuse me, in Romans 13, the powers that are be are ordained of God. Whosoever resisteth the power is resisting God. That's His authority. That's a hard one to swallow for Americans. I don't like about 99% of everything that they do. Just to be full disclosure. But when you understand the concept of delegated authority, there's times when Jess and I will want to go out on a date or leave the children, God rest their souls, and hope we come back to some semblance of a home and, and everybody's alive. But when we do that, invariably, we put someone in charge. You can't just let anarchy rule with 12 kids or you would come home to disaster if everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So somebody has to be in charge and we delegate, you are in charge. You have, I am giving my authority and I will have to line them all up and say, Gideon is in charge. If he doesn't rule well, when I get back, I will take care of him. But until I get back, he's in charge. And if you don't listen to him, when I get back, you're going to have a problem. You understand? Jesus gave, remember that parable he gave, uh, Luke 12, I think it is, where the owner of the vineyard let out the husbandmen, and he appointed people over it. And they, he sent his servants to go collect the harvest and they ill-treated him and he sent another and then he said well, let's send the son and they reject him and say hey let's kill this guy and we'll take over the vineyard he's the heir you remember what jesus said as he closed that story out what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do when he comes back and they said well he's going to destroy those people you understand that with authority comes responsibility, is you answer to the one who gives you the authority. Nobody is an island unto themselves. To have authority, you have to be an authority. And so as we look at in future weeks, and we won't do that here, but evaluate, let me just challenge you with this, of evaluating tonight your relationship to each of those three spheres. And say, how am I doing as authority in the home? How am I dealing with it? As a child, how am I handling my parents' authority? As a parent, how am I managing and stewarding the delegated authority that God has given me? In the church, am I in submission to the authority that God has delegated? And in the government, how am I handling that? And the reason that this is significant is because how you submit to authority in these three spheres, brace yourself, 
is how you submit to God who gave them the authority that they have. Isn't that terrible? It's terrible to be under it and realizing. I was talking with a couple friends of mine, and one of them was bemoaning they're looking for a job, and one of the other friends said to him, he says, the last four jobs you've had, you have complained about how incompetent your boss was. What is the only thing those four people have in common? Is they all thought to hire you. (laughs) We're good friends, very close, most of the time. You understand that it's very easy to see everybody else is the problem. Robert E. Lee, one of my favorite sayings of his on leadership, is that he said, I would never put somebody in a position of authority who was not first a good subordinate. If you don't know how to be under authority, good night, we don't want you in authority. Like There are children of mine that when we decide who's the oldest or the most responsible, get passed over. We're not putting you in charge. (laughs) You're not a good subordinate. And so we have to evaluate. It was a very, one of the most sober turning points in my life was the realization that I don't like the way God is running my life. Because if you follow it all the way up the food chain, guess who's at the top of that? And if we believe in providence, this is what makes providence such a, such a hard doctrine to embrace practically is that if God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of His creatures and all of their actions, when He's doing things in my life, I have to say, ooh, there's a, I think it was John Bunyan who said, God's providence is my inheritance. That's easy to preach. I could tell you guys about how important that is. It's a lot harder to live that out. And just say, I'm going to submit to this. But in contrast to the autonomy and the anarchy, the Bible asserts that all authority comes from God. Let me give you some examples from Scripture of this. You remember, and the examples I'm going to give are going to be kings and rulers. Why kings and rulers? God's not a bully just going around to people who can't do anything about it and pushing them around. To demonstrate his authority, he's going to take the the dictators, the monarchs, the kings, the rulers, the people that everybody looks at and says, man, those people got power. And God's going to tell them, no, this is what you're going to do and this is what you're not going to do. You remember the example of Pharaoh, ruled the whole world. And so when Moses came and spoke with God's authority and said, Let my people go. Do you remember Pharaoh's response? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? What does that have to do with me? Well, you guys are in Exodus 18 and you're reading. You're going to get there. How's that going with those plagues? How did that go for them? Until Pharaoh realized, wait a minute, there is a God in heaven. And God, remember what Romans 9 says about Pharaoh? 
that God raised him up. Why? To make his power known. And so turn over, if you would, to the book of Daniel in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, it's hard for us to fathom someone like Nebuchadnezzar, someone who is a, a world dictator in the fullest meaning of the word. You remember the story earlier in the book of Daniel, the three Hebrew children. What happened when you de- defied Nebuchadnezzar? You didn't take him to court. You didn't have an appeal. You didn't go call a lawyer. You didn't, there was no appeal. You don't do what I say. We throw you in the fire. Game over. No right to due process. He does whatever he wants. And so you take a world dictator like Nebuchadnezzar. And look in Daniel 4. It repeats this over three or four times. Starting in verse 17. If you know this story, it'll probably make more sense, but I don't have time to unpack all of it. But this matter is that by the decree of the watchers and the demand, by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know, listen, that the Most High, you know what that means? There's those that are high, the Most High. There's nobody above Him ruleth in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whoever he will and setteth over them the basest or the lowest of men. That's God, what God does. And he's going to teach this to Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn it. Look in verse 25. That they shall drive thee from men and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen and shall wet thee with the dew of heaven until seven times shall pass over thee. Here it is. Until you know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he will. You understand? World dictator, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to go have you eat grass over in that field for seven years. And nobody's going to take your throne And then I'm going to go ahead and just put you back on it. Because I want you to understand, I'm running the show. I will put kings where I want them, and I will take them down, and I will put them back. I will do as I please according to my own will. Now you remember we said, what is that autonomy, and what is anarchy, is when individual man says, I will do. I am sovereign. My desire is absolute. So God is teaching Nebuchadnezzar this lesson. Look in verse 32, repeats it. They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until you know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And then verse 35 Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, let me tell you what just went on there. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he, referring to God, does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one 
can stay his hand or say unto him, what are you doing? He doesn't have to give an account to anyone. He is the absolute. That's the problem when man assumes that position that belongs to God. Turn over to the book of Isaiah. Another good example of another king. This time, we find Hezekiah. If you know your Sunday school lessons that you were taught as a child about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the Assyrians came and took the ten northern tribes who were all apostate, took them captive, hauled them off. It's hard for us in an American context and in the setting that we live to grasp somebody coming in, defeating us, and hauling away prisoners of war and scattering them all over the world in your empire and then taking other prisoners of war from other nations and putting them in your house and saying, there, you're done. When the Assyrians, they were known for their cruelty, when they destroyed the northern kingdom, they piled the heads of the men in front of the gate. Just the heads of them. They destroyed the women and children, ripped them up, and in the scriptures it gives a very sordid scene of this scenario. So it's hard to grasp that. Well, after that happens, there's still the southern kingdom, the two tribes, and King Hezekiah and the King Sennacherib shows up with 185,000 soldiers and surrounds the city. So what does Hezekiah do? I prayed to the God of heaven. (laughs) We have no hope here. They've surrounded the city. There's no way we could get out. We are at their mercy. And so he prays. And in in Isaiah 37, it records his prayer. But look in verse 29. This is God speaking of what he's going to do to Sennacherib. And he says, Because thy rage against me and thy tumult has come up into my ears, this is what I'm going to do to this powerful king. I'm going to put my hook in his nose and my bridle in his lips, And I will turn thee back by the way which you came. Do you understand what he's saying? What would you think this evening if I took a ring and put it in in Kevin's nose, right on that tender part, that septum in between your nose, and I had a cord by it, and I said, Kevin, I'm going to lead you out of here. And you're going to follow. You're going to do exactly what I tell you to do. Right? It would be, it's humiliating. It's your tail between your legs on steroids. I'm going to put a bridle in your mouth and I'm going to steer you and I'm going to tell you exactly where you're going to go. And what you're going to do is you're going to turn around. What door did you come in? You came in that door? I want you to stand up, turn around and leave right out that door you just came in. That's what God says he's going to do to this king. And you've got to imagine Hezekiah is thinking, yes, <laughs> let's do that. And so if you keep reading, he says, verse 33, Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot a single arrow in this city. Right? In our language it would be, not a single shot will be fired. 
Nor will he come before it with shields or cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. Now go do what you want to do. Verse 35, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Verse 36, Then the angel, singular, of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. Your army is gone. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, smote him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Esarhaddon and his son reigned in his stead. You see the point? God does what he wills with the kings of the earth. He commands and they obey. If you turn over to Isaiah 44, you don't have to turn there, but God tells the Isaiah to prophesy of Cyrus that 400 years in the future, I'm going to tell you the guy's name, it's going to be King Cyrus. He's going to give the decree for the people to go back and rebuild the wall and rebuild the city. And his name's going to be Cyrus. 400 years in advance. You understand how long this country's been a nation? 200 and 25 years, 50 years, almost 250 years. And 400 years in advance, I'm going to tell you who's going to be the president. I'm going to tell you who's going to be leading the country. And I'm going to tell you what he's going to do, what his policy is going to be. See, God calls his people, Beaky and Smalley's systematic, God calls his people to be his witnesses who know and declare to the world his unique glory as the sovereign Lord and Savior. Spurgeon said this, you probably heard this quote, There is nothing for which the children of God ought more more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the work of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. Let me ask you tonight, do you rejoice? Does joy flood your soul and your heart at the truth of God's authority and dominion to rule the entire earth. Nothing is out of his power. At the same time, does it rejoice and, and, and fill your soul with joy that God's authority and dominion rule 
over your individual life? Have you found any other king that you would like to serve? Do you not willingly and gladly bow your knee to the king of kings? And say, whatever you want me to do, that's what we're going to do. Let me ask you this. Who gave him all that authority? How did he he get that spot? That's a good job. Well, nobody gave him that authority. It's his. Because he made it all. A.W. Tozer said this about the authority of God. Even to discuss the authority of Almighty God seems a bit meaningless. And to question it would be absurd. Can we imagine the Lord God of hosts having to request permission of anyone or to apply for anything to a higher body? Who does he appeal to? What do you think I should do with this? Who's out there that he would appeal to? To whom would God go for permission? Who is higher than the highest? Who is mightier than the Almighty? Whose position precedes the eternal? At whose throne would God kneel? Where is the greater one to whom he must appeal? He doesn't exist. He is the highest. And he has all of the authority. So then the question becomes, well, where does God delegate his authority? All authority comes from God, and he delegates his authority into these three primary spheres. The home, the church, and the civil government. I really wish you would have left off that last one. Not going to lie. Well, how do they enforce that authority? Because he gave those spheres the authority to enforce it. And in the home, what did he give them? The rod. In the church... He gave them the keys. And in the civil government, he gave them the sword. See, God doesn't give us authority and then just leave you helpless to wander around and go, oh, nobody's listening to me, nobody's listening to me. Now, we don't have absolute authority. We can be frustrated on a number of things. But as parents, God has given you a rod to enforce and to teach your children authority. You're going to obey. I would say this, that one of the best things that you can teach your children that will help them, the Bible says this, the way of transgressors is hard. And if you never learn to submit to authority outside of yourself, just look around. It is a hard road. But one of the best things you can teach your children is no. Obey, because I said so. 
Do you doubt that? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Does he stop there? That it may be well with you, that you may receive the blessing of learning obedience to authority. I can tell you, I, my parents were great parents, but they didn't do the best with their third son, John. A little bit of a stubborn one. My mother would break wooden spoons over me. And she says, I don't remember saying this, you can spank me, but I'm not going to cry. Well, I didn't learn it there, but let me tell you, God has a way of teaching things, and the way of transgressors is hard. And as God was working in my life through, through college, as I graduated college, you know what his next step for me was? I want you to move back into your parents' home and obey. And when mom says, take the trash out, don't say I will. Do it now. Do what you're told to do, when you're told to do it, with the right attitude, at 23. And I had to have some remedial courses to tap down the nails on that. But it, that it may be well with you. We don't discipline our children. We're not supposed to do it in anger. We want it to go well with them. If you can teach your children to obey, my kids can get a job just about anywhere. Everybody in the neighborhood's trying to hire them. Hey, you got any more kids? Uh, well, I got a 12-year-old. Well, let me meet you. Let me talk to him. Yeah, you don't want the 12-year-old. 12-year-old boys are not. There's a lot of work to be done on 12-year-old boys. But let me restate the problem in these three spheres where God gives the rod, the keys, and the sword of why this is under assault today. Autonomy in the home, where children are encouraged to have surgery to change their gender without parental consent. And you have states like California inviting them and saying, if your parents object, if you can cross the border and get into our state, we'll cancel their parental rights, we'll assign you a new parent who will allow you to perform and move forward with this surgery. Could you in your wildest imagination conjure up something like that? And what is that saying to parents? You have no say in this matter. That child has autonomy to do whatever they want to do. If you want to get an abortion and your parents won't sign off, just make it to our border and man, we'll help you out. We'll pay for it. God have mercy. But it's the autonomy of the home. How about the autonomy in the church? It's when there gets to a place where I cannot submit to the membership anywhere. I can tell you, pastoring out in Oregon for many years, Oregon is the, the people who crossed the ocean, landed with the pilgrims, crossed 
through the Midwest, crossed the Mississippi River, crossed the Rockies, and went as far as they could to go be on their own and do what they wanted to do. And now you're telling me I need to be a church member? That can't be in the Bible. And I had that conversation so, so many times, I just was ready to quit. Because we would like all the privileges, but we don't want any accountability or to answer to anyone outside of ourselves. We want complete autonomy. How about autonomy in the state? Have you ever asked yourself, who wins if we defund the police? Why, how is that even a thing? Who, who is on that? Who is advocating for that? How could that ever be a good thing? But they're an authority to enforce and say, no, you can't do that. If we have a biblical view of authority, we acknowledge that Christ rules over heaven and earth. He said it in Matthew 28 that we read, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You've probably heard the famous Sproul quote where he talks about maverick molecules. I want to read it to you. It's a little bit of an extended quote. He says, if there is one molecule in the universe running loose outside of God's sovereignty, what I like to call one maverick molecule, the practical implication for us as Christians is that we would have no guarantee whatsoever that any future promise God has made to his people will come to pass. If we have one maverick molecule, one, that is outside of God's control, he says, we have no assurance whatsoever that this single molecule may not be the grain of sand in the machinery of God's eternal plan. It may be the thing that runs amok and makes it impossible ultimately for Christ to return to this planet. It may be the thing that destroys any hope for the consummation of the kingdom of God, leaving all those promises of God unfulfilled. There are no maverick molecules in a universe where God is sovereign. Being in Dutch country here, you probably are familiar with Abraham Kuyper's famous quote, he doesn't talk about molecules, he talks about measurement. There's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. All of it is his. And what happens when men rebel against this? And obviously God in his sovereignty allows this. There's the famous statement by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I believe it was in Russia, and the evils of communism. He said this, Men have forgotten God, and that is why all this has happened. Turn over, if you would, to Matthew 5, or excuse me, Matthew 8. I want to show you this principle in this interesting interaction that Jesus has with a centurion. You probably are familiar with the story. In Matthew chapter 8, notice in verse 5, 
And when Jesus entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion. What's a centurion? It's someone who has authority over a hundred soldiers. You understand, soldiers don't just follow anybody. But somebody who has authority over a thousand, or excuse me, a hundred soldiers, century, and beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Now think with me for a minute. Here's a man in authority, and what's he concerned about? Those under him. His servant. And he's taking off of his day and his time to come to Jesus and say, My servant, not one of my soldiers, my servant is sick and tormented and he needs your help. See, all authority that God delegates is for the flourishing of those under you. That's why He gives it. That you make sure that your home is ruled well. And that your wife flourishes, that your children flourish, that everything is flourishing. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. You understand what he's saying? You have authority. Your word has authority. You don't even need to come physically and bodily and deal with it. You just speak the word and it will be done. How did he know that? Well, he gives the answer in verse 9. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go. And he goes. And I say to this man, come. And he comes. I understand authority. And if I can say to people what to do and they do it, you speak the word only and it will be done. You see it? And Jesus heard it. He marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great authority, no, not in Israel. Is that what he says? He says, I've not found so great faith, even in Israel. Why faith? Because you believe that God has the authority to do whatever he wants to do. You just speak and it will be done. You don't even need to come. This centurion understood authority. In Mark 13 and verse 34, 
I mentioned this earlier, for the Son of Man is a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. And what is the point? Whatever authority he gave you, you need to do what he has given you to do. This is why we live in a culture and in a time where there is ignorance as well of a rejection of a biblical understanding of authority. But this is where, in the scriptures, when we look at these three spheres, and the Bible says this, feel the weight of it, as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Church, submit to your elders. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Citizens, submit to the powers that be as unto the Lord. Why? Because we know who's in control of them. And it's a matter of faith. God's authority is his right to command, his right to tell us what we ought to do. Authority is a defining feature of lordship. This is John Frame again. When we know that God has truly spoken and that he has announced his ultimate intentions... We have no right to question him. Let me give you an example. I'm almost done. I'll cl- uh, almost close with this. But I had an interaction with a pastor friend of mine on this issue of authority. And he makes this statement. All authority in this world is delegated authority. Do you agree with that? Yes. That is given to men from Christ. Every earthly authority bears, as it were, a piece of Christ's authority in a form of stewardship. Do you agree with that? Yes. Even though earthly rulers bear this authority, they are not Christ and are not deserving of a submission that is absolute and unconditional because they err. Do you agree with that? Yes. When one submits to Christ, they submit to earthly authorities. But when one submits to Christ, they do not submit to earthly authorities when and where they err. Would you agree with that? He goes on to say, when earthly authorities do not pursue the will of Christ and act contrary to how Christ would act, then we do not owe them submission. Well, your parent, let's apply this to you. What would you think if you told your child what to do and he said, well, that's, Dad, you're a little frustrated. I don't think that's how Christ would be, so I'm not going to obey that. Mom, you're, you're yelling, and that's not how Christ would do it, so I'm not going to obey that. Do you understand 
giving authority to sinners that who ultimately determines what's right in that scenario? Everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. You following me? Now I realize, and I'll in future developing the tensions of this, not oblivious to it, but in its essence, submission to authority is not when you just agree with them. In fact, I don't even think you can really submit unless you don't agree with them. Let me give you a scripture. Turn over to 1 Peter, chapter, I think it's 2. Don't take my word for it. I know that's a hard one to swallow. Feel the weight of it, because it's a heavy one. In 1 Peter, chapter 2, and verse 18. Servants... Be subject to your masters with all fear, right? But look at this next statement. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Some, people, some translations say even to the perverse. You say, you got to be kidding me. You're telling me this monster of a master that I have, and I'm a slave, you're telling me to submit to that? Are you out of your mind? For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. We don't do very good with this in our society because everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And learning submission is learning of who you're submitting to as unto the Lord. Like I said, I'll deal with the tensions of the, there's checks and balances that God puts in this. For example, if a, a father or a husband abuses his authority, is beating his children, in a criminal way, you can call in the civil authority. And they will come into your home, and they will remove those children out of it. And that is the way God made it. And the church will step in, address you, call you to repentance, and discipline you from the church. So there's checks and balances there's the check of, you, you know this scripture, if the government is expecting us to, to disobey God, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's not the only measure, but that's certainly a clear one. If the church is abusing its, its authority, if they're doing something criminal, the civil authority can come in and arrest who's ever doing the abuse and, and get rid of them. And as a, the head of your home and as a family, you can exit the premises, stage left, and say, no, we are not submitting to that. That's unbiblical. 
So there's a check and balance there. I'm not saying just willy-nilly anybody can do anything and we just need to sit there as little field mice and bow to it. I'm not saying that. But you understand that there's an element of recognizing the authority that God has delegated to these different spheres and that they will give an account for what they do with his authority. And that we can do this. It's thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Let me give you a couple examples, I'll be done. If we determine that only those people who do what Christ would do that we have to submit to, how long would that list be? It's a real fancy way of nobody. Well, what if Joseph followed that premise? And he told Pharaoh, listen, Pharaoh, this is the, the paganism in this outfit is not how Christ would do this. I'm out of here, man. I'm not putting up with this. He'd be dead. Well, he's dead now, but you get the point. How about Nehemiah? Remember you're reading in Nehemiah, and he goes before the king, and he says there, I have never been sad in the presence of the king before. You don't go into the king's presence with a, a down countenance, or you'll be dead. But he didn't go in there and say, hey, listen, buddy, we've had about enough of you. Or how about Daniel, with all, those, all that wonderful spiritual worship going on there in Babylon? And if he would have just said, you know what, I'm out of here. I'm not putting up with this. You understand, we live in a unique time, and praise God for the freedoms that we have and the things that we have access to. But we have to be careful about reinterpreting the Scriptures that basically eliminates all authority where we determine who we're going to obey and who we're not to, and we become our own and do what is right in our own eyes. And this is why I challenge you tonight. Well, let me just give you one, one great example. How about the Lord Jesus Christ? Luke 2.51 says he leaves Jerusalem. Remember they lose him? And he went back to them and was subject to them. Do you suppose they ever did anything that he could have said, that's not how I would have done that. But he was subject to them. And in Philippians 2, why we marvel at him is that who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal of God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. How about the people who executed that trial? Was that a right trial? Was that just? He became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. Why? Because he knew who was behind that. He wasn't submitting to Pilate. What did he tell Pilate? I have authority to call 12 legions of angels 
I believe I got that right. But you understand the, the, the dialogue he had with Pilate. You could do nothing unless it were given to you of my father. And he did nothing wrong. I can remember as a kid watching some of the movies of the life of Christ and, and thinking, this is a crime. They are crucifying the only innocent person in the whole. Like, you can't do that. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My challenge this evening is to evaluate your relationship to each of these three spheres. Because how you submit to authority, because all authority comes from God... It's how you submit to God. This is where our belief in the sovereignty of God is a very sobering thing. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you are the Most High, that you are in control of everything, and everyone, that there is no maverick molecule, that there is no square inch outside of your domain, and that you do exactly, you work all things after the counsel of your own will. And we rejoice that that is so. We rejoice that you do not follow the whims that we come up with. And we look and marvel at how you execute your plan to perfection. We don't understand it. We confess the stubbornness in our hearts as we resist the powers that be, even though we know they're ordained of you. Help us to have wisdom. Help us to willingly suffer for your name's sake. Help us to understand that role. Help us to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name.